0: So welcome to the Dharma talk tonight at the end of the third full day of our retreat. And what I would like to talk about tonight is shame self-compassion and the body, amongst other things. (laughs) Um, So here we are, here we are, and I'm sure you've all heard that riddle of what has four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening. You all heard that? No? (laughs) So, what has four legs in the morning? (laughs) Two legs at noon and three legs in the evening? A human, a human being, right? We start out crawling on all fours. (laughs) Then... Most of us get to be on two legs for a time, and there are exceptions, like where we have periods where we have to have extra legs again, and then we might get back to three legs (laughs) in the evening. And if we would take this from a Buddhist perspective, we could add and has no legs at night, because that's where we're going back to. So Bob um, quoted, I know that's one of Bob's favorite poems and definitely one that I learned from you, I first heard from you, is the poem that is attributed to Martha Elliot, which is called Your History is Here Inside Your Body. And I will read that to you, the full poem. So your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse of learnings, feelings, thoughts, and experiences, only waiting to be invited to reveal your treasure to yourself, help yourself. As you let the learning emerge and take shape, you can appreciate the wisdom of the body, each cell alive with spirit, emotion, and intelligence. Ready to help you at any moment, always with you and for you. And I think that is an important reminder as we are entering more deeply into the body, because for many of us, the body doesn't feel like a safe place, or parts of the body don't feel like a safe place. And then there are best-selling books out with titles like The Body Remembers or The Body Keeps the Score, and those books are about trauma and surviving trauma and healing trauma. But basically the message is that that is what we hold in the body, and that is true. But I also want to remind us all that that is not all, right? Because of course the way that we are wired is that we're focusing so much on the negative, on the painful, we're just hardwired to do that, that the positive, the beautiful, and even what we call the neutral is drained out. And what we can be left with is the sense of like, the body just holds all those bad memories, just holds the trauma and everything else is not there or got lost. But it is true that as we're moving, as we're paying attention to the body, Course, memories do come up, and a lot of those memories are painful. And a lot of those memories are associated with, mm, for most people, one of the least favorite emotions, which is shame. And so I just want to explore that a little bit from different sides. And one thing I want to start with is with my own story, my body story a little bit, but also about living in a female body, which is associated with a lot of shame or shaming over the years. Just the message that, I mean, I don't wanna speak for you, obviously, but that um, I think like many, most females in our society, and maybe around the world are getting And so I want to invite you to think about, I mean, not just for the uh, females here, we're identifying as female here in the room, what messages did you get as a child about your body and who you are? Like we talked about yesterday about head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. And then about flesh and sinews and bones, right? So that is a lot what makes up like the visible part of the body. And in our small group yesterday, we heard about like how much shame that can be associated with these parts. So first a little bit about my story, and then I want to tell you another story like about like where I learned something that I didn't know about other people's bodies. So for me, you probably have noticed that from my accent. So I'm not a native English speaker. I'm German, My that's where I come from, where I grew up. Um, and my mother was born in 1942, so during the Second World War and That was her history, her history, that her father was away at war as being a Nazi soldier. Then he was a prisoner of war with the British for years, and he came back, and for a long time, suffering really badly from PTSD, and really leashing out to his young daughters, one of them, my mother. So, growing up in a country that actually survived the war. And in Germany, it's just like this very complicated story of being the ones who started the war and who've committed all these atrocities that you know about. But at the same time, also, our country got destroyed and millions of people got killed. And that is just ordinary people, families, mothers, children, brothers, sons, husbands. And so we are carrying both that burden in our history and we're carrying also, of course, the shame that we just have as a people of having been or still are being Germans. So there's a lot of um, intergenerational shame that has been passed on to me and I will just cringe and collapse at any mentioning of the Holocaust, I still do that. That is so ingrained in my body and in my being. So there's a lot of shame, deep, deep shame around that. But what that meant growing up um, was, and definitely that's also of course like the Protestant um, religion of that part of my family where like my grandparents. So basically the message that I got as a child was don't be happy. We survived the war and we committed atrocities. Like, don't be happy. Put your head down and work. My mother was suppressed, uh, was depressed for quite some periods that um, of my childhood. So she was withdrawn. She wasn't there, right? So like the, the connection that we need as children. It was very clear in my upbringing for many different reasons as it was not okay to dance right as a little girl that's frivolous you don't do that it was not okay to move later as i was growing or maybe just as a little girl to move in a sensual or sexy way very clear We're like we don't do that because you don't we will not be taken seriously if you do that Then you basically make yourself available just as a sex kitten or basically as meat. So I actually, it took me like into my 40s and I finally realized that there was a part of me that actually was still really in there and suppressed and what I actually did at some point is I picked up pole dancing. Because I thought, you know, this body loves to dance, it loves to move, and I really, I feel shame and I feel embarrassed if my, has changed, but back then, if I move my body in a sensual way, right? I know that's different in some cultures, but in my culture, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. I still feel, like, ashamed, like, if I have cleavage that is more like this. And I know other cultures are just fine, and they can just show themselves. Not okay for me, right? So to actually learn, take a class. That's how I learn things. <laughs> I take classes. <laughs> and by the way, pole dancing is really is a kick-ass workout, let me tell you. Um, so I learned a lot of things doing that. Um and, but also the message was don't play. Playing was not okay, right? To be serious, you had to learn, you had to study. And then growing up, uh, my mother was um, single. Most of the time my parents divorced when I was very young. And my mother was very ambitious and she was told as a young girl that she couldn't study architecture, which is what she wanted because she was a girl. So she had to become a landscape architect which she did, and she got really good at that, but she grew up with that message that there are limits for girls, and so she was really determined to teach me that you work really hard, you have to be twice as good as the men, and then you have a chance, right? But you're not frivolous, you don't play, you don't flirt. Otherwise, you won't be taken seriously. And so I learned to be very disciplined. So I'm very disciplined with my meditation. (laughs) Very disciplined with study. um, I'm a gynecologist by training, so really disciplined, really good grades, going to medical school. And then when we moved to the U.S., at some point I thought I might want to go back into medicine here in the U.S. And then I did all my exams again in English. And at that time I had three young kids. And so discipline, you just map out your plan, Do your steps, put your head down, and you work. So, now to do that, and now I'm a runner. I run long distance, of course, also disciplined. So, I'm really good with that. I'm not so good with not being disciplined. That makes me really anxious, makes me anxious to be soft, right? I really have to work at being playful. I have to really work on this. And what it is, is really, it's amazing. How much shame can come up when I'm confronted with these shaming messages from my childhood? And I really want to invite you to really see like what were the messages that you got as a little girl, as a little boy, as a little, well, I might not be sure like what my um my gender is, right? And then being shamed for, I don't know, being shamed for the color of your skin, being shamed for being too big or too small, or your breasts being too big or too small, your hips being too big or too small, right? Anything can be something to be shamed or just being shamed for who you are, that you're not functioning the way your parents needed you to function, to be more self reliant or be more invisible to have less needs or whatever that is that was not okay or you heard as a message of actually not being okay or not being good enough and so shame is a very interesting emotion and um And it's really, it's one of the most difficult ones to be with. Would you agree? Shame is hard to be with. Yeah. Um, And it's, I love, um, so I learned a lot about shame as I was starting to like feel more deeper, more deeply into my own shame. And for a long time thinking like, oh, I don't feel shame um, because it was just too scary to feel it. So I kept it under wraps, and um, I love the work, at some point I started working more with um, self-compassion and being, becoming more familiar with the work, especially from of, um, Christopher Germer and Kristin Neff in the mindful self-compassion class. And I love the way that um, Chris Germer talks about shame because he says, shame is an innocent emotion and when I first heard that, I was like, what? It's a toxic emotion. It's a toxic emotion because what, what does shame do? Right? So if you're, if you're feeling like, so what does shame make you do? Or what's the posture of shame? The posture of shame is like this, right? You lower your head. You just want to be invisible. You want to be invisible. You want to be not here. Like to the point you want to be dead because it feels so horrible. And then, so what is the function of shame? So why does Chris Germer say that it's an innocent emotion? Because he says, well, it stems from our wish to be loved, our wish to belong. And then everybody experiences shame. And that's the interesting thing is like we're putting so much effort into not letting anybody see our shame, right? Because that is how shame functions, like shame functions in the dark. Shame, like we're ashamed about something and as soon as we're, for whatever reason, we find somebody we can talk about and that person says, oh yeah, me too. And you go, oh, thank you, thank you, right? And then suddenly the shame can, at least sometimes that's how it works, it can start to shift because you don't feel like the one outcast anymore. So the function of shame, so shame is just as all the other emotions, just something that we are born with and that has a function. So emotions have a function. And the function of shame is to make us behave in a way That we conform to the family, to the tribe, or to the group. And that is important for us as tribal mammals, right? We can't survive without a tribe. We think we're so independent and we're just gonna do it all by ourselves, but that's actually not the case. So if you're thinking about a baby, a baby is completely helpless. And if, as a baby, you're able to be loved, you survive. Because if you're loved, right, then everything you need will come to you. Food, clothing, care, connection, protection, shelter. Right? And if you're not loved, you're dead. That's basically what it means, right? And so we are hardwired to make sure we are being loved and we will do pretty much anything to belong and to be part of the tribe. And this is so heartbreaking if we get the message that we don't belong, right? Or that there's something wrong with us. But in the end, we can really think about then the message of shaming. Like, what is shaming doing? If we're thinking that shaming, and again, not often shaming is just being shamed. It's just a horrible thing. But shaming sometimes can stem from the intention to not have you be outside the tribe, if that makes sense. Right? Right? to basically to coerce you into being like everybody else to great cost because that might not be who you are. And what we really want is, what we deeply want is we not only want to be loved, but we want to be loved for who we are. We don't want to be loved for all the conditions, right? But so what we learn is, like, if we behave like this, then we will be loved, and then we belong, and then we're part of the tribe or part of the family, maybe. Unless that, what we are ashamed for is actually nothing we can change, and we can bring back into the tribe. And that is so heartbreaking, right? I was... um, recently talking to a um a dear friend of mine who's gay and he was describing that um he is growing in his profession and with that come more responsibility but with more responsibilities come the necessity to also to set boundaries to some of his teams. Like, okay, you actually can't do this. Or part of the team, you need to do this, right? So just be more assertive. And he was sharing with me, like, how much, how scary that is. And then first we were just talking around, so so just like your people-pleasing side. And then he was saying, yeah, people-pleasing, definitely have that. And then a couple of days later, he came back to me and said, like, you know what it is? It is, as a gay man in a predominantly straight um, environment, work environment, I need to fit in, right? So I need to be loved, and I can't be different. And if I tell people something that will make them mad, right, I don't want to be the mean gay guy. And that really stuck with me, is thinking like, oh yeah, of course, right, here we go, here is the shame of just, like, how are we navigating our, who we are in a society, and it comes often at quite a high cost. So, Let me see for a second. I told you earlier I would tell you another story, but I think I've missed that <laughs> window, so we're not telling that story. Uh, so, moving on. No shame. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no shame. It's just a great story, and I yeah would have liked to... Um, but I'm not doing that right now. So another talk. Um, So before we move a little bit more into so what actually helps with shame, um, just also want to make sure. So the difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is also a normal human feeling guilt or remorse and guilt is basically the feeling that you made a mistake right um shame is the feeling that you are a mistake so that's a huge difference right so with guilt basically it's based on an action maybe you did something that was embarrassing um But, again, it's like it's um, often you can remedy it. And there's even some research showing that if people made a mistake and they show signs of guilt or embarrassment, that the other people find them more likable than if they're just pretending it didn't happen. So it's interesting, right? just like as so the social function of embarrassment or guilt so has that that it actually makes us more likable, so it has this positive quality, but shame is really more insidious because it often and like depending again on like how many messages we have gotten about ourselves, our bodies, our who we are um growing up um there can be really this feeling of there's something wrong with me and there can be a feeling of like I'm basically unlovable. right? So behind the shame or like big doses of shame, there is often like what we call negative core beliefs. So negative core belief is so if I just dig down, 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 it's a belief that I'm not lovable, that I'm unworthy, that there's something wrong with me. Um, The interesting thing, I love that this also comes from, um, this actually comes, I think, from the work of Paul Gilbert, who has done a lot of work with compassion. And so what they say is that these negative core beliefs, they are so painful that we often don't even know we're holding them. Or if we know that, then we try to, again, really protect that from anybody else to know that. Um, But what they say is that there are like only about like 10 to 15 negative core beliefs worldwide. So that means that like what you don't want anybody to know about you and it's like your secret, um, my secret too, of course. So um, we're sharing that with about half a billion other people. (laughs) It's like, oh, really? (laughs) That means if you just, so if we have like, let's say we have 10 negative core beliefs, that means like there are several other people in this room here who have the same negative core belief or core beliefs and is really trying to um, not show that. And that, I come later back to that, so why knowing that is actually helpful. So, how do we work with this um, oh one more thing also maybe just a little um slides in here because i th- i don't want to miss this so um how many of you are here from the bay area okay lots of you okay so are you aware of the um inside out uh prison project at san quentin right lots of you are yeah and so um what they're doing there um they're teaching a program to inmates there, um, many of them lifers, who is called, uh, that's the program is called GRIP, that um, stands for Guiding Rage into Power. And so they're working with inmates to, like, it's a year long program. And they're teaching mindfulness, and they're teaching anger management strategies in a very, very powerful way. And they have, like, I don't know if that is the latest data, but what I found is they have, like, over 100 men released uh, from the prison system. So the idea is, like, you free yourself from prison before you get out, (laughs) right? This is the teachings of freedom that we're teaching you here. And so far, none of these have been um, have been re-admitted um, for a new crime, which is incredible. If you know the rates of like um, the the readmission, that's just it's incredible. And many of these men are then teaching it to other inmates and teaching it to other people who are outside, and it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful program. Why am I mentioning this? Um, Because they are doing a program, a two-day program, where you can actually go into San Quentin and kind of be with um, a group of people in a class. And a friend of mine did that. And what she shared was really stuck with me. So she shared that um, a group of men who are not sociopaths, right, um, were talking about um, what made them commit the crimes that they did. And so, I mean, like the program is called Guiding Rage Into Power. So often it was it was not a calculated crime, but it was a reaction, a spiraling out of a being triggered, right? So often abuse history, often like the whole cycle, often like so many men in prison are come out of the foster care or, I mean, don't want to go into whole like the systemic um, racism. Um, but what it boiled down to, which the men were able to talk about, they said in that moment, I mean, afterwards, giving insight into it, they felt such shame. They felt so shamed in that moment before they committed the crime that the shame flipped into rage, right? So rage is the more acceptable feeling, especially for men, right? So like rage is more tolerable, right? Because also like, especially like with this idea of like men have to be strong and act, whatever, right? And so that then they couldn't hold that. And then it just flew. And it was just, they're like really like, um, really, beautiful stories about like how, like sometimes these seconds, right? Made them end up with life uh, like a life sentence. Um, Because in that moment, they were not able for very obvious reasons to hold that strong emotion. But what stuck with me is really the role of shame, right? Like being shamed and you would rather die or kill in that moment then feeling that, now holding that. That is really how strong shame is. So what's the antidote? The antidote to shame is compassion. Compassion. So if you're thinking about, if you think about a situation, let's just keep it simple, let's keep it with like embarrassment, you could say like this is kind of on a spectrum, like shame is over here and then maybe embarrassment is over here, guilt somewhere here. <laughs> so but start with something, if you could just remember something that was maybe a little bit embarrassing. And, and think about if in that moment there would have been somebody who really loves you and What would you have needed to hear in that moment that would have helped you with that embarrassment? So if you just think about in that moment when you were feeling the shame, so I'm just Bob like with your real cream, right? In that moment, what would have helped, right? I don't know, I'm imagining that, that adult came up and said like, oh, Bob, right, you really want to look fabulous today, right, and with so much love and understanding, of course, of course, right, and then come on, let's, let's clean this up, right, let's find a faucet somewhere, let's find some soap, right, we got this, right, wouldn't that memory like have completely transformed, right, so that's compassion, that's compassion, So again, like, of course, we make mistakes, right? And we're not perfect. And that's really hard to come to terms with that. But if, right, there would have been really people. And often it's like there's nobody, right? And so we think there is something wrong with us. Or like, why can't we be better? Why can't we stop doing that? Why can't we stop being so so clumsy, so... Stupid. So, I mean, whatever, like the internal voices that we might have in that moment. So, that is compassion. And so, the practice is, right, because often there is nobody who will tell you that. So, in our practice here is compassion is when love meets pain. It turns into compassion. Compassion is really love, right? So, pain deserves compassion, and it doesn't matter whose pain that is. And for whatever reason, we have got something messed up there because we don't think this is pain or this is a painful situation that deserves compassion, we go like, who's feeling the pain, right? And if it's you, sure, I have all the compassion here for you, right? So usually feeling compassion for others, being compassionate feels a lot easier. But as soon as it's like, I am the one who's experiencing that, just like, that's it, right? Because we have this idea like, it's self-indulgent, it's weak, it stops, like, motivating us. Like, I mean, like, all this idea that we might have about self-compassion. Um, and, I mean, Sharon Salzburg she says this very nicely about um, kindness, right? She basically says, like, a lot of people have this idea about kindness, saying, like, oh, if you can't be um, super successful, then you can be kind. <laughs> right? Right, You can be a tough, successful shark, right? Like, ooh, sexy. Or you can be kind, <laughs> right? As if that was a consolation prize, right? Um, you get a medal too. You can be kind, right? And I think like we also, we have this thing with compassion, um, especially self-compassion. And I know in some cultures, um, like actually, like practicing self-compassion, like oh oh no no no, right? And it's often, especially for men, that's just extra forbidden to be compassionate with yourself. And that might not be the case for you. And if it's not, you're in a very lucky situation. But for many men, that's the case. So, um, self-compassion. So compassion as i said so is love plus pain it turns love turns love into into compassion and that is what we need and it can be helpful to i mean you can just practice compassion just like that but to come back to what i shared earlier about like the sense of like talking about the shame Right, making it like oh, other people have that too, right? So bringing in the element of like shared humanity, that is actually part of the um, part of how compassion works, right? And in that way, it just um, goes deeply hand in hand with the Buddhist teachings. So according to Kristin Neff, who's a self-compassion researcher, she broke that down into self-compassion into three parts so the first one is she calls that mindfulness but basically it's just like being aware just saying what it is telling the truth in that moment and that's often really as basic as saying like yeah this hurts or yes this is painful or this is a painful moment right and we can tell it Say that to ourselves. So instead of pretending that oh this isn't happening or I shouldn't be feeling this right, To say like yeah that that actually does hurt right. That remark last week that that was painful. So no matter how much I tell myself that oh I get over that was about her, it's just like no that that was painful, and just to state that and say like yeah painful that can just a very helpful step, and then of course. The kindness, so that's another element, is the self-kindness. So often, like, so how do we talk to ourselves in a moment of pain, right? Can we just, we say, like, yeah, that was painful, right? So the way that I say that out loud now or say that to myself, that can be already, like, helpful so we can hear the compassion in our voice, right? So it's not like a clinical Uh, a matter-of-fact statement. And then the core piece is really the shared humanity. And the shared humanity means that this is a natural response for somebody in this situation. If you express that in Buddhist terms, you would say, like, suffering is a part of life, right? Or that's like the first noble truth, dukkha, suffering, right? Or there's pain in life. Or it's just the inherent unsatisfactoriness of life. Just like, yeah. And it's, we, it's not that we make a mistake when we suffer. Like we ha- often have this idea that if we only work hard enough, and if we self-improve and meditate hard enough, <laughs> then we will be happy ever after, right? That's the pursuit of happiness. And I think, especially here in the US, like we get this very strong message that it's all up to you, right? Individual freedom. And if you don't make it, oh, well, you probably didn't try hard enough, right? <laughs> Isn't that right? And it's just like, ooh, are you kidding me? Like, have you, do you know anything about causes and conditions? Like, no, just try harder, right? So the, Shared humanity is really this piece that... So you can just say, like, well, it's not a mistake that I suffer. That's just part of the package of being a human. Or you can make it very specific. So you can say, this is what it feels like to be. And then you can really say, like, This is, like, in my friend's case, to say, like, this is what it feels like for a gay man to feel like I don't want to ruffle the system because I need to be accepted and loved. Right? This is what it feels like. We can say, like, this is what embarrassment feels like. This is what shame feels like. Right? And it's natural to feel shame in this moment, like when these memories come up. Right? And... Then what we do is what we can do in that moment, we can, because sometimes it, so the thing about shame is also really the factor of isolation, right? That we can't make eye contact in that moment because we really, we feel like we've just been outcast of the tribe, right? And again, this is in order to make us feel so bad that we are willing to do pretty much anything in order not to feel that again. This is really like how we will then change behavior if we can, right? Because it feels so horrible. and But so in that moment, it also feels very isolating. Pain usually does that. So that's not just the case with shame, right? Pain, like when we're pain, pain when we're struggling, when we have strong emotions of anger, of sadness, of rage, of isolate. It feels isolating, right? Often when we get sick or we get a diagnosis or something horrible happens to us, chances are that nobody in our immediate circuit has that, and that makes us feel like it's just us, right? Nobody really gets this. And so it feels that, yet it just confirms the sense of like isolation of the pain, right? But if we're open up to the fact that chances are that whatever is happening to you has happened to other people before, could you say that? I mean, no matter how rare that is what happened to you, other people either have been in the same situation, had the same condition, right? Or have felt this way in response to something before, right? So have felt shame and despair and rage and isolation and sadness and grief and the whole range before. And so what we do in that moment, we can open up to all the other people. Go like, yeah, there's a tribe out there for you. In that moment, there are people who know exactly what that feels like, what you're feeling right now. And they might be feeling it right now. Or they have felt it many times before. And this is really how support groups work, right? This is this is how why it is so helpful to hear me too. This is why the me too movement is so powerful. And there is really something that's interesting that um Kristen Neff, because like self-compassion has this rep of just being so nice and fuzzy and cozy and so so yin in a way, that um Kristen um just started teaching something that she calls um, the yin and yang of self-compassion. And that came out of actually offering more groups, self-compassion groups for men, right? Because so if you're teaching self-compassion, what will happen is that most of the people who show up are women, right? Right. Um, It's hard enough to kind of acknowledge that some self-compassion would be useful. But again, it seems to be easier for women to acknowledge that than for men. And so they've started teaching classes just for men. And they found that some of the the vocabulary and the verbiage is just not working, right? With all the like, no, no. This is, no, this is, again, this is about translation, right? Right? We have to find different words that resonate, that make sense. It's not about that particular word. That's just a combination of letters. If that doesn't make sense for whatever you're experiencing or what you hear us say here, then use another word. It's not about this word. If the translation of dukkha for you, suffering, doesn't work, use something else. Say stress, unsatisfactoriness, say, I mean, right? That's the to get the sense of what this really is about. That is what is important. So she talks about, um, so the fierce, the fierceness of compassion or the yang of compassion. And with the shared humanity, the yang aspect of that is strength in numbers. Strength in numbers. That is what happened with Like, Black Lives Matter. This is what happened with, like, Me Too. It's just, like, we need a movement, right? We need more and more people who say, like, enough already. And it often feels like one person, right? We can feel really, um, it doesn't make a dent. It doesn't matter what I do or don't do, right? But if my compassion really moves into, like, the marches or protests or just saying, like, it's not just me, we're here, like, we're growing, we're bigger and bigger groups and we can make a change. So there's a fierce side, a fierce side of compassion. So... I just have a few minutes left, so let me just restructure the rest of my talk for a second. Um, Okay, so the practice that we're doing here, so I just want to say, bless you. a little bit more about the practice that we're doing here. Now, we had um, questions in our group today. So why are we doing this? So why are all this focus and is, doesn't that just bring us more into thinking, which is not really the point, right? Like thinking and ruminating and no, that's not the point. But what we do is um, so... Uh, Bob and I have a long history as uh, MBSR teachers and MBSR teacher trainers. And like one of our core practices is what we call the body scan. Bob mentioned that in the first night. And um, so, which is kind of what we are doing here. And he said, like, this is like the... What did you say? Like the original body scan, <laughs> like the thirty-two body parts, and but what it does. So what it does really, and we've mentioned that before, but it's really important. So that you really engage with this practice. So the practice does two things, in my opinion, and I'm happy to hear like my um, my colleagues here more on this. So one thing, what it does, it it starts to let us appreciate the parts of the body more. Right, Because often we are not even aware that we have all these parts that are doing their work day in, day out for us. Like So like there can be, maybe with like what we're listing, there can be a sense of awe, like, wow, really, it's doing that all the time, all day in, day out? That's amazing, right? And so suddenly there might be more appreciation for a body where before it was just like, oh, the body, like I would rather not have the body with me, but, well, what can I do? Um. So we're moving into the body and uh, appreciate it for its function. and But at the same time, what we also do is we learn to take it less personally, right? Because that's what a liver does. That's not just your liver. That's the function of a liver. And that's amazing. And I'm happy that my liver is functioning, right? And all the other parts. Right so it's like these two things because what we normally do with our body is like because we have often such a complicated relationship like with the shame and then we have have obsession about other body parts right Like we want them to look a particular way or don't look this way. Or we're just like thinking of the Excel sheet that Bob showed us, like with all the money and the tension that we put into like the head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, just to make them look and appear. And then the muscles, we shape the muscles, we go to the gym. like And of course, that's all of that is healthy, but there's also that portion of I wanted to look a particular way, right? Again, why do I want it to look a particular way? so that I feel more lovable and more acceptable. So, and the thing really is, is whether we like it or not, this is the one body that we have. This is it, and you have to live with it 24 seven, right? And you might have really tried not to be in the body at all, and uh, probably for good reasons, right? So probably at some point it wasn't safe to be in the body, right? Or you've been so shamed that you have a deep mistrust that this body actually is lovable. But something drew you to this retreat, right? Maybe just the time window worked and you had to do a vipassana retreat (laughs) and you're just like a little bit like, whoa, like what did I walk into here? Um, I know that probably the case for some of you but for others it's just like the the title of freedom in the body like wow wouldn't that be nice wouldn't that be nice if i would be able to actually live in this body with ease and peace or more often right And so the practice that we're doing is a lot really sensing into the body parts. And what we do is we sensitize our nervous systems to regain information from these parts of the body and just information that is helpful for us to be in the present moment and also to make wise decisions about our life. So areas that you can feel right now, if you really pay attention to the body, if you do body scans over an extended period of time, you will feel more. And when you feel your body more, right, and not just like the hurting shoulder, like or obsessing about like how everybody thinks your butt is looking, right, which is usually an image that is not a felt sense, right? It's an image that we have that we judge. Images are tricky, so that's why we're not doing visualizations. We're really feeling. if we, What we feel is pressure, warmth, temperature, position. Those feelings are actually neutral. Like pain, of course, has a charge, right? But most of these feelings are neutral. Like pressure doesn't say too big or too much, too little, too whatever. It's just a sensation. So, and then when we can feel the body and the whole body, right, the parts that we're not paying attention to, so we get more information from the whole body and what we're learning with that is actually we are building a more grounded anchor for our attention. Because where do we land our attention? When we say like be in the present moment, what do we mean? What we mean is like use one of your senses. Anchor yourself in the senses. When we say like feel your breath, that's a sense. Feel your feet, that's a sense. Taste your food using our senses, right? And so what we do is we land back in the body. You land back in the body. And with that, it is so much easier because it has a landing place. So it's not like this weird void thing and we can't feel most of it. And then there are some areas of tension and pain. In other areas, we would rather not go at all, right? That's a weird place to hang out with. That's not a home. That's not a home. So, okay, time to (laughs) wrap up. (laughs) And I'm thinking I have a poem that I thought I would end with, but now I'm thinking I actually have another poem that I will pull up for you if I can find it. Um, just give me a second. Hmm. Just meditate and be present. <laughs> it's worth it, I promise. Oh, here we go. So this is from one of my favorite poets. Mark Nepo and it's called having loved enough having loved enough and lost enough I'm no longer searching just opening no longer trying to make sense of pain but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land no longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen, the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong But then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door. A door into the endless breath that has no breather into the surf that human shells call goddess. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.